You're listening to the CMS Podcast, brought to you by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Each Thursday during the semester, our graduate students welcome a prominent speaker to visit with them. And if you're around campus, you too. If you are, check out our event schedule at cms.mit.edu slash events. And maybe you want to be one of those grad students. You'll find info at cms.mit.edu slash apply. Now sit back at your desk, zone out on your train, or continue to pay very, very close attention to the road as we introduce today's speaker, Nancy Bain of Microsoft Research, teaching us about artist-audience relations in the age of social media. everyone. Uh, tonight our speaker is Nancy Bame. The title of her talk is Artist-Audience Relations in the Age of Social Media, which is a fantastic topic that I think should be of interest to uh, any Joss Whedon fans who might be out there, uh, or uh, perhaps Felicia Day fans and, and people who are interested in the Guild um, is one uh, study in particular, I can, or case study in particular I can think of that's relevant here. Uh, Nancy is a principal researcher at Microsoft. Um, she's the author of Personal Connections in the Digital Age and Tune In, Log On, Soap's Fandom and Online Community, which is, I think is a bit of a, a classic uh, this point in that, in that uh, topic. Uh, and she's co-editor of Internet Inquiry with Annette Markham. Um, for the last two years, she's been interviewing musicians about their relationships with audiences. And um, the special issue of the Journal of Broadcasting Electric uh, electronic media on socially mediated publicness, which she uh, co-edited with Dana Boyd, uh, has just appeared as an open access publication, which is a really big deal for them. It's the first time that the journal has done that, so they seem very uh, pumped up about it, uh, as is Nancy, and as she should be. Um, so please join me in welcoming Nancy Bay. Thank you. Yay, open access. All right. Well, hi, everybody. There you are. I waited for you before I started. There's five more people. Well, then I'll wait for them. Four, three. <laughs> uh, so thank you for having me here. It's really nice to be here, and I'm very happy to have the chance to tell you about the work that I've been doing with musicians. So no Felicia Days um, or guilds, but maybe a little Amanda Palmer going to get snuck in there, maybe. Um, if uh, I'm talking too fast or if you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand and interrupt me. I won't get thrown off, um, and if I do, it will be fun. Uh, so what I want to do, I want to start off by framing some of what I think are the dominant discourses about online audiences these days um, and how those position artists, in particular musicians, and I want to talk about an alternative story that I think needs to be told alongside these discourses about the social values that are going on online and how those impact what it means to be a musician. Um, I'm going to articulate some of those social values, and I'll talk about then some of the challenges that they raise for artists. Um, so I'm talking about musicians, but... I am a huge music fan, and that is part of what motivates this project, but I'm... I, I'm also motivated by the fact that I really don't think this is only about musicians. They're the test case, but if you think about music, 
Music files are, you know, what? what? How big was the last song you downloaded? They're not very large, right? They don't take very long to come down the pipe. So you get this peer-to-peer transactions around song files that they'll get everything eventually, right? It's all going to go that direction. So it's, it's, I would say, the first of these industries to be really put into massive upheaval, but will not be the last one. Um, I was at Midem, which is a European music trade show a few years ago, right when the global financial crisis hit, and sort of the leitmotif of the whole thing was one executive after another getting up going, ha, we've been having a global financial crisis for years. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll talk a little bit about that. I've got some good pictures of that. So let me start off, if this will let me. Hello, okay. I'll use the space bar then. Oh, I haven't crashed or anything, have I? Okay, I'll start off by talking about what I think are these two dominant modes of talking about audiences. When you look at the discourses that surround online audiences, and the first of these, of course, is pirates, right? Audiences are thieves. We're there to loot, to plunder, to steal. Um, You do a Google search for music pirates and you're just completely flooded with the possibilities. Of course, this is not a new discourse. It's one that's been around for a long time. I remember the bumper sticker, uh, home taping is killing music and it's about time. Actually, this is killing the music industry and it's about time. Nobody wants music to die. Nobody. Nobody wants music to die. Um, But what has happened, of course, is that file sharing has become so easy and so prominent and so prolific that... Home taping, you know, it didn't really dramatically cut into vinyl sales. But file to file, file sharing, there's an argument to be made. I think the jury is actually still out because research does suggest that people who download more also buy more. Um, but that said, clearly the fact that there's torrent files and Pirate Bay and all of those sorts of things means that this kind of file sharing and Piracy, which is a word that I loathe in this context. I think it's totally appropriate in Somalia, but I have some real questions about whether it rightfully applies to audiences. But nonetheless, definitely a dominant discourse. Um, So you start seeing a lot of charts like this. The, The upper one is put out by the IFPI, which is a European organization, the lower one by the Recording Industry Association of America, Both of these are recording industry profits. I particularly like this one uh, by the RIAA because it starts in 99 and it shows this dramatic drop in sales. If you compare this with the chart above, you'll see that 99 is the peak, right? I worked in a record store in the late 1980s when the curve starts. And that's when they did, threw out vinyl and we all had to go replace all of our records with CDs. So I would argue there's a bit of an artificial curve there to begin with. And if you look at it with that in mind, we're back to where we were before they made us all switch formats in the first place. That said, <clears throat> this kind of discourse results in uh, a tremendous amount of lobbying, a lot of efforts to inter- influence international law. It's not a harmless discourse. It's one that has very real consequences. I just read today somebody in France um, 
is getting thrown off the internet. He's actually volunteering to leave the internet of his own free will because his wife downloaded three songs. His soon-to-be ex-wife downloaded three songs. Uh, France is a country that's passed one of these three strikes, you're out rules. Um, it's actually not three strikes. It's three accusations of strikes. So he's now been accused. His wife says she did it. It was his internet connection. So he's in trouble. And of course, you have these international arrests like the mega upload and things like that where you have major crime-fighting resources being diverted to pay attention to this issue of piracy. And you have these things like somebody being fined $67,000 for 30 songs that he had downloaded. I love this. The Recording Industry Association claimed uh, recently in court that the losses they had sustained because of LimeWire, the file trading site, was $75 trillion in damages, okay? That's more than the global GDP. The global GDP is supposedly between 59 and $62 trillion. So more, music has, more money has been lost by the recording industry than exists in the world because of file sharing. Okay, the, I want to be clear that I, I do think that there are major issues with unauthorized downloading, and, and uh, I know personally a number of people who are financially hurting and who are really freaked out about how can I earn money when I can't sell my music anymore effectively. Um, that said, I do think the dominance of this discourse in thinking about audiences is counterproductive, uh, or at least out of balance. So piracy, one of the big discourses we're dealing with. Another one, of course, is customers. This is the alternative to the thieves is the people who pay, right? The, the ones who used to go to record stores back in those glorious days when we had record stores. Uh, I hear that 10% of the record stores in London that were open 10 years ago are still there. Um, a sad figure. The record store I worked at went out of business quite some time ago. So when you think about audiences as customers, then it becomes an issue of monetizing, which is next to piracy, my other least favorite word in the human vocabulary, except perhaps leveraging and synergies. Um, and so you get tons of headlines about monetizing fans. How do you monetize your fans? Monetize this, monetize that. Personally, as a fan, I find it insulting to think that artists are looking at me going, hmm, how can I monetize you? It makes me feel a little trashy. <laughs> um, my favorite example of this is a local company, and I'm not saying they're a bad company. They might do great work, Moon Toast, who have gotten a patent on the concept of return on fan, not to be confused with return on investment. This is more precise. So you have this other frame, right? And this is the one I would say, again, if you go to music industry events, you've got these two discourses, one of which is, how can we connect with fans so we can monetize them, and how can we influence policy to kill piracy? And those are the two dominant discourses that you hear. The whole idea of customers and music being monetized is a relatively recent historical invention, which is something that often gets forgotten in this whole process. Uh, this is a great book by David Seussman, I think is how he says his name, called Selling Sounds, which is a historical tracing. It looks like it might be kind of boring. It's really fun, really interesting book. I really highly recommend it. And he traces the history of the commodification of music in American culture. Um, and he shows that it starts in the late eight, 
late 1800s with the invention of the player piano and the ability to go buy player piano rolls and bring them home, which is the first time that apart from actually playing instruments yourself, you could buy something that would make music for you. And it continues into sheet music. So fairly recent innovation, um, although it gets forgotten, right? We forget that the commodification of music is a historical phenomenon, and it sort of comes to be so naturalized that it seems like a God-given right to buy and sell music. Of course, what else would music be? To suggest that music is free and social is um, sort of sacrilege. And in fact, at music events, when I talk about the idea that music has social value, um, I'm often accused of not wanting musicians to make music, as though these, to make money, as though these two things were somehow incompatible, that if you believe music is primarily social in its value, then you're saying money has no place in the ecosystem. And in part, what I want to argue is that these two things go together, but if you want to think about money, you really have to think about the social also. So if you think about piracy and you think about customers, where does that leave musicians? What are musicians, right? If the people who receive their music are pirates and customers. Well, one thing they are is manufacturers, manufacturing a commodity, the CD, the piece of plastic, the piece of vinyl, perhaps the digital file. They're distributors who get this shipped out all around. And they're merchants selling a product, right? Most artists don't really feel very happy with this characterization of what it is that they do. Again, not to say they wouldn't like to make money for what they do, but when you cast audiences as pirates and customers, you cast artists as manufacturers and, and retail people, which is a totally economic way of thinking about the exchange between artists and their audiences. Um, a lot of people like uh, gift, gift, uh, gift culture kinds of models for thinking about this, and I do too. But I also find uh, good old economic ex and social exchange models really helpful for thinking through this. And Blau in 1964, kind of a long time ago, and yet magically still relevant to new media, um, lays out these ideas of what constitutes economic exchange, that there are very specific obligations. A CD has a price tag, right? The rate of exchange is set. There's a number on that. And if you pay that number, you get the CD. You have to do it at that particular time. Or it may be, you know, your credit card will be billed upon shipment. Um, there's legal principles. If you take it without doing that, you're, you've committed a crime. Um, the interaction is impersonal. It doesn't matter who you buy it from so long as you get it. And you don't really get to know them. And the value is independent of the provider. So who, who it comes from doesn't, doesn't make a difference. A lot of economic exchanges actually don't meet all of these criteria, and these are somewhat fuzzier. You know, I bought some earrings recently in a store, and the lady was so darn nice. She was like, oh, you're new. Go shopping here. This has got, they've got the best vegetables over there, and don't bother with that store. And I'm like, I'm totally going back and buying more earrings from her. Right? So it's not a super clean-cut distinction, and nobody ever really pretended it was. So what's the other story that we could be telling? We can talk about music as social. We can talk about it as a means of connecting people, right? When music was invented, God knows how many millennia ago, and I don't think anybody really knows, but a really, really, really long time ago, probably before clothes, um, 
They weren't doing it to make money. They weren't like, hey, I'll sing you a song if you give me that bone to gnaw on, right? They were doing it as a means of connection, as a means of, of probably spiritual connection with one another. My strong feeling, and there's so much work to be done on this, but my strong feeling is that if we think and we really understand these social values, that's going to be our route to dealing with the economic problems, that when we approach it as manufacturing and theft, we're not going to solve the economic problems that way. That boat left the dock a long time ago, and it's, we're not going back there. We have to think about what are the social values and how can, how can we honor them. So if we think about social exchange, it's quite the opposite. And again, it's not that fuzzy. The obligations are unspecified. You let me download a song, what exactly do I owe you? We'll work it out, right? Uh, the exchange rate is unspecified. When I have to give back is unspecified. Rather than being based on, a, on law, it's based on trust or a sense of obligation, right? Um, an example I can draw from personal experience is a CD that I loved, 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 loved. Totally one of those super obscure things that there were like, you know, maybe a thousand of them made. Um, I've listened to it so many times. I would have worn out the grooves if it had grooves. And they recently did a Kickstarter to do a reissue of it. I gave them $100 for something I already owned. Why would I do that? Because I felt ob obligated. I felt like they had given me something of value and I wanted to give back to try and reach some balance in that exchange relationship. And I wanted other people to hear it. The interaction in social exchange is interpersonal. Relationships are formed through this process. And it makes a difference who it comes from. All right, so with that as a background, let me tell you a bit about the project that I've been working on. I've been interviewing musicians, and the reason I've been doing this is to address these kinds of questions. How do musicians understand their interactions and their relationships with their audiences? One of the things that has really struck me in all this discourse, especially around piracy, is that with the exception of some very famous rock stars, voices of musicians are almost completely absent. You hear industry professionals you don't hear a lot of artists talking about it. And when you do, you hear a huge variety of perspectives. Um, and then, of course, being a social media researcher, I wanted to know how social media affected those relationships and interactions. So that's the general project. I've been doing interviews. Um, Turns out interviewing musicians is pretty challenging. It's not like you can just go, hey, Pete Townsend, want to chat? And he's all, sure, Nancy. How about now? Um, it's a bit of a trick. Snowballing turns out not to work very well, so basically I've just been pounding the pavement for years. And I managed to eke out uh, 38 semi-structured interviews. Uh, I'll go through who these people are in a minute. Um, semi-structured meaning I've got about a dozen questions. I've got a few of those that I ask absolutely everybody. I ask most people most of them, but these things go in all kinds of directions I didn't see coming because I'm really trying to get them to elaborate their perspectives. And I don't know what that is till I start talking to them. I will say that at 38, it's about 850 pages, single space pages of transcripts. With each person I talk to, I hear something I haven't heard before, but it's about 95% repetition of things I have heard. So I feel pretty good about it. There's, I, I wouldn't mind talking to more, but I got a lot to work with. Um, and then... I do really close iterative analysis where I just go through it again and again and again, uh, reinterpreting what, I, what these people have said, looking at it through different lenses, comparing, contrasting, sorting, sifting, until, ta-dum, themes emerge. 
<laughs> and logics behind those themes. So who have I interviewed? I've tried to be uh, international in this. I've tried to focus primarily on people who had audiences prior to social media so that they experienced that transition, and I marked that as about 2002 when MySpace happened, which is a huge turning point for interactions with audiences. There were a few in the 90s who put up a website with a guest book, but that was sort of few and far between. So I got some Americans, some Brits, some Canadians. Uh, these are what, what's known as legacy artists. They already have an audience. Um, I was looking mostly for people who still do have audiences. I loved this phrase. This was Sievert Hayim from Norway who called himself one of the last generation of analog musicians. Their album came out, their debut album came out in 1999 and then MySpace hit, bam. So they were sort of the last ones to get going before social media was a thing they had to contend with. Uh, again, a lot of Scandinavians and I got my Spaniard in there. My Spaniard with whom I am obsessed. Um, and then I got a few of the post-MySpace people who started after they already knew they were going to have to contend with social media. Um, this is my new favorite band name, Necromantheon. <laughs> he was so nice. All right. A pretty wide variety of genres. If you look at this, obviously there are some major ones missing, like... Hello, classical music. Um, so if you know people in other genres who might want to be interviewed by me, let me know, especially if they uh, have you know, some degree of success and actually have an audience rather than aspirations of having one one day. Uh, most of the people I talked to were independents. Uh, some of them are on or have been on major labels. All right, so what do the artists themselves have to say about this idea of monetization and and manufacturing. This is Brian Travers from UB40, who sold 70 million records, although he's not sure where the money went. He does, however, live in a house with a home studio, so he must have gotten some. Um, he says it's, he's talking about performing for audiences live. He says it's catching them and it's just touching them, and that's not easy. Anybody who thinks that easy, he's cr crazy, but you can't substitute it with industrialism, with manufacturing of pieces of plastic. So, touching. Right? Just touching. Um, this is Stephen Mason from Jars of Clay, who won a Grammy some years ago for their debut. Uh, Christian band, but not uh, super heavy-duty gospel Jesus songs, um, but definitely a very Christian kind of ethos that influences their approach. Um, he says... Uh, artists are alive when they create, and people that consume art are alive when they receive it and they pass it on and they share it. Very different perspective on policy, pri piracy, right? Piracy is life. And life, you'll see, is a theme that really comes through here. We want what we do to have more significance, you know, than just, as I said earlier, than just a financial engagement. We make a product and people buy the product and then we make money. Okay, so... What is this more significance? And that's what I'm trying to get at, is what is more significance than manufacturing pieces of plastic in order to make money? Um, the, this is some of, these are the ones I'm going to focus on today. Um, there's some other things. They talk a lot about how fun it is to perform and how fun it is to see people dance. Uh, and they talk about um, the pleasures of being accepted by their peers as 
skilled musicians, and they talk about how cool it is to see the creative things that fans do in response to their work. But I want to focus on the more relational pieces of this, the more directly communicative ones, one of which is this, this idea of touching, right? of, of emotional reach, of helping people understand their difficult emotions, of speaking of things that can't be spoken through music, and of communicating about these non-linguistic, really deep, significant experiences that people have through music. And the other of which is this idea of building relationships, which happens at two levels, both between the artist and the fan as an individual dyadic relationship, and also amongst the fans, uh, which artists now can observe in ways they couldn't really observe it before. So let me start with this emotional reach. Here's my beloved Nacho. That's his real name, by the way, Nacho Vegas. In Spain, that's a normal name. <laughs> I always feel bad because I say to Americans, I'm totally into this guy, Nacho Vegas. They're like, what is that, like some kind of cornball Las Vegas kind of a thing? No, it's beautiful. Um, he says, when you talk to a friend, you think in a logical way, but there is another way of communicating to people, a way that has nothing to do with logic, with your reason. These are the confusing things that you have to put in song. All right, so he says, this is why he makes music, because there's these things he can't say, and the only way he can understand them and, and step away from them is to put them into song. Um, and a lot of artists talk about how people then experience that and they think they're really close to you because it speaks to them so profoundly. Um, Steve Lawson, who's a scream on Twitter, if you, solo bass Steve, if you want to hang out on Twitter and follow him, he's all over social media, this guy. Um, he talks about the individual relationship. He's a guy who does house concerts. He's really into knowing his fans individually. He says, I'm making friends with people who listen to my music, and then I become part of their life, and they become a part of mine, and I am truly enriched by that. And the music becomes the soundtrack to that relationship. So for him, the music is really, the relationship is first, right? That's the point of it. Um, so this kind of connecting to audiences is, of course, not new. This is a fan letter. I don't know if any of you saw that. This is a response to a fan letter that David Bowie wrote to a fan in 1967 which showed up recently on Letters of Note. Um, 25th of September, 1967, he says, uh, when I called in this, my manager's office, a few moments ago, I was handed my very first American fan letter, and it was from you. I was so pleased I had to sit down and type an immediate reply. And I just want to highlight a few bits of this. He says, I've been waiting for some reaction to the album from American listeners. There were reviews, but they were professional critics, and they rarely reflect, reflect the opinions of the public. So right there, you've got a need to connect with audiences in order to hear how they understand your music. Right? He goes on a bit. He says, uh, in answer to your questions, my real name is David Jones, and I don't have to tell you why I changed it. Uh, which speaks to some of the issues I'll raise later about deciding what and what not to disclose, right? So right, or even at this point, you see people say, making strategic decisions about what they will and won't share. Um, the guy hoped to get to America, and then in the end, he signs off. He says, thank you for being so kind as to write to me, and do please write again and let me know some more about yourself. <laughs> How many of us would just die to get that letter today, right? <laughs> um, so, 67, that's kind of a while ago, right? Almost 50 years ago. Um, and you see these 
processes that are very much still at play happening already. But when social media come along, you get so much more of this, right? People who uh, wrote fan letters were sort of the only way. Maybe you would see somebody live and you could communicate with them. But now you get more communication, you get more kinds of communications. I did a count of how many different kinds of social media uh, artists mentioned in the interviews, and it was almost 40 different specific media that got mentioned. Everything from mailing lists, one-to-one -one emails, Facebook wall posts, Facebook messages, Twitter, blogs, on and on and on. So you get many more kinds of communication, and you get communication that's continuous. So it's going on every single day, even during time periods where you haven't put out music in a long time and you haven't been on tour in a long time. You're still in communication with the audience. Um, here's a, a quote from Stuart Braithwaite from Mogwai talking about getting more mail and, and the, the change that MySpace created. When MySpace became popular and people could write straight to a band, I think that was a point. I think a lot of people had never considered that you could just email a band. So even with email, people weren't doing it. When that first started, we got a lot of correspondence through MySpace from people I don't think would have considered sending us an email. Right, so MySpace is this real turning point. The floodgates open and boom, they're hearing from their audiences. And so this is awesome, but it's also kind of complicated. And there's, it's a double-edged sword, as Billy Bragg put it. So let me talk about the positives and then I'll talk about the negatives. So this thing about emotional reach, about speaking to deep feeling. Um, this is a quote from Mike Timmons from the Cowboy Junkies, and he says, this is being recorded for a podcast. I know you guys can read, but the audience at home cannot. Uh, Most musicians have gotten into it because as fans, they'd been deeply touched by music in some way or another, and usually by a handful of bands or musicians, and they have their own stories as fans. So when that gets reversed and somebody's coming up to you and telling you their story and how their music and what you've written or sung or played has deeply affected it's often extremely private and personal sections of their lives. It's really amazing. It does validate the whole thing for you. You know, you go through periods where you think, what the hell am I doing this for and who's listening? And then you only need one or two of those and you go, okay, well, right there, that makes it. That's worth it right there. So it's very important to hear these stories, I think. Okay, so what I want to emphasize about this, obviously the validation is huge, but also the fact that they hear these stories a lot more now. Fans would always come up to them after shows, and they still do, and say these things, but now they're hearing them on email, and they're access to these very private pieces of, of life. Um, this is Steve Lawson. This is a really surprisingly typical story. Uh, there was a guy that sent me an email, and all it said in the email was, my dad just died, all I can listen to you is you. And I thought, is this spam? I don't know, is this weird, twisted spam? What I did was put the first half of his address from gmail.com into Google, and it brought up his last FM profile. And indeed, he had spent the last three days <laughs> listening to nothing but me. And so I sent him a message back and just said, what can I say? I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm humbled that I've managed to provide some kind of solace in the middle of all that. Let me know if you need anything. You wouldn't believe how many musicians told me about hearing that their music had helped them through death as the most rewarding experience they had had in an interaction with their audience. Um, this is another one that I love uh, from, whoops, hello. 
from David Lowry from Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker. Um, he likes to fight about politics on his Facebook page. He really enjoys being a rabble-rouser and getting some good conflict going. He says, I just remember this one guy who used to always argue about politics, and then I just noticed he sends me a message directly, and it's about his mom is basically dying, and her final request is this one Camper Van Beethoven song, Take Me Down to the Infirmary. I don't know. He wrote me this really interesting note. It was just how his mom was old, but he played Cracker so much, she started listening to Cracker, and it was just interesting. We always have these kind of nice little personal conversations now. I was kind of stunned and flattered that somebody would, basically the song that she wanted to hear on her deathbed, and it was just, wow, I, it never really occurred to me that our music could penetrate that far into someone's emotional life. Right, so they're learning. They're learning from their audience. It's not just validating. They're discovering the power of what they do in ways that they weren't aware of that had never occurred to them. I don't know how much that, I don't know how you monetize that, but maybe somebody does. Uh, so let's think about the relationships between artists and fans. This is Roger O'Donnell, who played in The Cure for a while. You may have heard of them. They were kind of big. Um, he says, I don't like to call them fans. Not anymore. They're more like friends, people that are interested in my music and what I'm doing. I get three or four emails a day, and I'll answer, and I have good conversations with people. Right, so he's a good example of somebody who hangs out at home, writing by himself. It's kind of a lonely process. He's kind of a sad guy, or at least he was at the time I interviewed him. And these continuous emails are connecting him with people, and he's building relationships and building friendships. He told me that many of his closest friends began as fans. Uh, Zoe Keating, who will be here in a few weeks, um, really interesting person. Um, she talks about playing in Colorado. There were a number of people there who came up to me to say hello afterwards who only knew me on Twitter. So they came to the concert just based on our social media connection, and they felt secure enough in our relationship that we could go hang out. And you hear this a lot, where people meet each other through social media, and then when they tour, they connect in person, and they go hang out. Sometimes I'm told, though not in, by my interviewees, that this includes figuring out who you're going to sleep with before you get there. There's also this phenomenon of fan-to-fan -fan relationships, the communities that forms, fans form together. And, of course, there's been a lot of fandom research on fan community. I might have done a bit of it myself. Um, music, of course, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that most music fans are more interested in how music connects them to other people than to the artists who make that music. They're not necessarily exceptionally interested in getting to know their favorite rock stars, but they have their special song that reminds them of that moment when they did that thing together. Roger O'Donnell talked about playing on stage, and they would start a song, and he would see a couple in the audience look at one another in a way where he knew that was their special song and how special and cool that was. Um, so you've always had that, but of course what the internet has done is it's just really ramped up the possibility for fans to engage one another and to form large groups and small groups that are, that are built around appreciation of fandom. And it makes this visible to musicians in ways that it wasn't. You know, you go to a concert and there's your crowd going, yeah, we love you, and they're singing along, but you don't see the conversations they're having with each other except those looks and poignant moments. But now you read every little thing they're having if you're brave enough. Um, and again, audiences will tell artists about this. So this is Sievert Hoyam 
Uh, he says, I, I, I like it when I get personal messages. People write me or send me a message or something about how they were at a gig with their father and how they really connected through the music. Again, think about David Lowry's story of the son and his dying mother connecting through their music, right? So they're hearing these stories of how their music connected people together in ways that are sometimes powerful. Another person told me a story of how uh, he and his dad never got along, but the music was the one thing they could agree on, and so they started going to concerts, and it really helped bring them together. Billy Bragg spoke beautifully about this. He talked about his fan forum, um, and in particular, the, the story was way too long to fit on a slide, but he talked about how um, the leader of the fan forum's husband, had re- who was also part of it, had, had died of cancer recently, and how moved he had been watching this, and he was actually pretty choked up when he was telling me this, So he says, there's a group who talk to each other in the forum in my website. They all know each other. We're not just talking about fans. This is something else. Not just people. These are friends. And then he goes on. He says, they like getting together at Billy Bragg gigs. That's what they do. They might not like Billy Bragg. I mean, I spoke to one of them the other day, and she's absolutely clear she's not listened to an album I made in the last 10 years. (laughs) That's cool. I'm not worried about that. That doesn't bother me, the fact that I provide them with a social framework. I'll just let that one sit. I will say, though, that I think that this is kind of a key when we think about what constitutes a sustainable career, is if you've got a fan group that really passionately care about each other and you're providing the social framework that allows that community to exist, then they're going to be invested in going to your concerts and buying your tickets, even if they haven't listened to an album you've produced in the last 10 years because they don't really like you anymore. And in fact, some artists really consciously try to foster communication amongst fans. So Jill Sobule talks about her Facebook page, and she says, I like discussions that have nothing to do with me. I might see something in Sweden. They don't seem to mind their health care. And I've got like a couple that always talk right-wing, really right-wing fans. So they're so provocative because they know me and they know my fans. So on my Facebook, I'll say, you know, my update will be something like that. And there'll be like 100 comments to each other, and they're mostly funny. Right, so she's trying to get them to talk to each other. She's provoking them in order to get the fans to talk to one another. She also does things like, you know, hey, can anyone recommend a good dentist? <laughs> okay, so this is all some of the good stuff, but as Nacho says in his beautiful, not quite perfect English, it's much easier to be in contact with your audience, but it's too much easier. Um, so I want to talk about some of these too much easier. What, what happens because it's too easy to communicate? What are some of the challenges that they face? Uh, and you see a little tiny bit of that in that David Bowie letter. So one of the big ones is that increased contact is in conflict with mystique. Right? Bowie is a great example. Right? When Bowie says, I'm not going to tell you why I changed my name, This is true. See? So you yeah. have to tell you because you know that people would say I'm Davy Jones if I went by Davy Jones. Oh, you're right. Good point. Okay. I totally retract that interpretation. <laughs> Thank God you caught me before I published it. The embarrassment. <laughs> Good point. No, you're right. You're exactly right. So thank you for that point. I didn't even put that together. Um, He's still a good example, though, of somebody who's got a lot of mystique, right? 
and who doesn't tell us everything, and who we probably don't want to tell us everything, right? Um, Lloyd Cole is, I love what he said about this. He said, I've met some of my heroes, and it's not always a good thing, and I do think that inequality in the relationship is what keeps it alive, and I think one of the things that's possible with my web presence is that the last shards of my mystique are in danger of being completely obliterated. Lloyd Cole is a really interesting character to me because he is, I would say, at the end of the spectrum of kind of wishes social media had never happened and he could just be a rock star and not have to deal with his audience in person. And part of that is a kind of social awkwardness. But part of that is also, I think, having talked to him about it now, I think is a real genuine belief that it's detrimental to his fans' appreciation of his music and that it's not the right thing to do for them, to let them get to know him too well. Um, And that runs through this concern that if fans know you too well, if they know too much about how the music is made, you'll lose your mystique and the music will lose its power. Mark Kelly from Marillion talks about uh, their music is, is generally fan-funded. They were the first band to use fan-funding for their music. He talks about it's a tricky one because you've got these fans that are into your music and the musician isn't the music and maybe they should be kept a bit separate. People say they want to know everything that's going on, but again, when we're in the studio writing and recording, if I was to tweet everything that happened, you know, the things that people say, the arguments we have, the stuff that goes down, it would probably destroy the magic a little bit, you know? So how do you disclose what's going on in ways that will engage fans but won't detract from the mystique that makes the music have that magical power to connect? Um, Some people then are very strategic and conscious about what will they disclose and what won't they. This is D.A. Wallach from Chester French, uh, Harvard alum, who was the first band on Facebook because they happened to be getting together at the exact same time that Facebook was happening at Harvard. Um, He says, you want to create an exciting experience of being a fan for your audience, and that involves both presenting and concealing information in interesting and surprising ways that make it fun to follow you, fun to wonder what you're up to or whatever. I think there's a virtue on the customer service side of things if it were a traditional business and answering every single question on Twitter, but I think as an entertainer there might be a value to answering one out of every ten so that it feels really special if you do, and you're kind of reinforcing some sense of inaccessibility or stardom. Right. So again, what I want you to think about here is he's not doing this because I'm too important to talk to my fans and I don't care about them. It's about... I want them to be fully entertained. And if I disclose too much, it won't be fun anymore. So related to this is issues of privacy, right? I'd argue that mystique, the conflict, the challenge with mystique is preserving the power of the music. The challenge with privacy is preserving some space for yourself, something that's special about the close relationships you have that makes it different from the relationships you have with your audience, and also about protecting the people around you who may not want to be drawn in or who may want some information to be just for them and not for everybody in the world. Um, Often the artists I talk to talk about pressure, they talk about discomfort, sometimes they even talk about fear around these issues. Um, This is again Lloyd Cole, he says at times he's talking about his, his fan site, he says, At times I feel like I've got something like a second family with these people, which is really not what I set out to have. So I asked, well, what did you set out to have? He says, an audience. 
I say, as you move from audience to a sense of second family, how did that process work for you? He says, through various levels of uncomfortableness. Um, this is Sievert Hoyam, who's um, most of you, if not all of you, have probably not heard of him, but he's a huge rock star in Norway. He's probably one of Norway's biggest rock stars. Um, he's definitely one of Norway's biggest rock stars. Um, you know, when his wife got pregnant, it was, oh, Sievert's going to have a baby in all the newspapers and things. So pretty famous, right? Um, he says, if people want to get a hold of me, they can. So some people, you just start communicating with people, and they just kind of, it can take up a little bit too much of your time because they write back all the time and I don't want to be rude and it can get a little too friendly. And then he goes on and he talks about how some people feel like they've got a really special connection with you because they've been so touched by the music and in a small country like Norway, that's just not okay. It can get scary. Okay. I love that he thinks he has to write back. Right? And in fact, these people are texting him a lot of the time. He's given them his phone number. Um, so for him, the challenge is how do I preserve personal space? How do I preserve time for my wife and my baby and not for this obsessive fan who I can't get out of interacting with? And this issue of when do you stop interacting is a real challenge, and people have very conscious strategies for dealing with that. And others, like Siever, just don't know how to get out of it. Um, this is Erin McCune. Um, and I like this quote from her because it, it indicates the ways in which the site's infrastructure themselves, the way they're designed, can, can foster problems. And she says, Twitter and Facebook kind of demanded fresh personal content, and I've certainly felt the pressure. That's often at odds for me with the amount of things that I'm willing to talk about and with the three or 4,000 people who follow me online. It's like having boundaries without the appearance of having boundaries and trying to find a way to interact in a sincere and genuine and meaningful way with people and that reflects your personality, but also it's not completely transparent. Right? So where do you draw these lines? How do you figure out? And of course, if you're on Facebook, you have these same problems, right? That darn what's on your mind is there every single time you log on. And you have to think about, well, what should, do I want to tell people what's on my mind? Right? It's, always, it's always kind of a problem, but it's really ramped up if you've got three or 4,000 fans who want to know what's on your mind. And of course, the site says, what's on your mind? And you're supposed to tell them. If you don't tweet, you're a bad Twitterer. Um, this quote from Mark Kelly speaks to the ways in which families and loved ones are impacted. Right? I got told off by my wife for posting stuff that's too personal. This is about Twitter. The thing I got told off about was tweeting that I'd had a vasectomy. But you know, it's like if you're going to do it, well, for me anyway, I felt like I had to do sort of stuff that was going on. It might or might not be interesting for other people. I must admit I haven't done so much lately. Maybe I've gone a bit too far, gone too far with it now. Right, so, and, uh, this is the same guy who was talking about not wanting to tweet everything that was going on in the recording studio for fear of ruining the magic of his music. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that speaks to how tricky these boundaries are, right, and how conflicted we can be about what we do and what we don't do. Knowing I had a vasectomy won't affect it, but maybe knowing that the guitarist and I had a conflict about this song, that might mess it up for you. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm nearing the end here, and then we'll have plenty of time, I hope, for questions and conversation. Um, this increased conflict contact is also 
for many of these people, it's in conflict with actually having the time to make the music. I'm sure you guys never experienced that as scholars. Um, I certainly don't. Um, but musicians do. So this is a story Jill Sobule told me, which I absolutely love. She says, I was having writer's block about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and my friend said, well, why? You know, you want to see my therapist? This was a psychiatrist, the one that gives you drugs, because I'm thinking maybe I have ADD and maybe I should get on Ritalin. So that's what I was thinking was going to happen. I was that desperate. So I went to him, and he listened to me for about an hour and a half, and he just kept writing, and he says, so tell me about your typical day, what you do. And I told him that, and at the end, he got out his prescription book and started writing, and I'm thinking I'm getting speed. And he wrote, and he handed it to me, and it says, no internet for two weeks. I asked her how she did. She said she made it 10 days, and it made a big difference. Um, I mentioned in terms of Aaron McEwen how the designs of the sites can foster problems. Um, if you think about a lot of these sites, they're changing constantly, right? Plus, new ones are coming along all the time, right? So this, this musician, Kate Shutt, who is a jazz guitarist, she basically decided she was giving up on social media. She'd had enough of it. She says, if I have 15 minutes, am I going to read some fucking, excuse my French, but fucking small print about Facebook? You know, who can view this and that and try and figure it out in my brain or would I rather practice my guitar and become a better musician? I would rather practice my guitar and become a better musician. All right, so a lot of people uh, are struggling with this. How do I manage time and productivity? And, and have this contact, which, as you can see, provides some really real rewards, but which comes at a cost. Um, some people talked about things like, uh, I do it in the tour bus, and then I respond to everything at once. Right? Um, so there's a lot of different strategies for handling this. Okay, so that's my, that's my quotes, and I'll kind of wrap up here. Um, so what, what, what are sort of the takeaways... Um, I don't think that social media invent brand new phenomena that have never been known to humankind in the past. Um, there's so much rhetoric all the time about revolution and everything's different and friendship means something completely different from what it ever meant before. I don't buy that. But what I do think they do is that they enhance processes that have already existed. I, for many years have said, and I, I think you see it throughout this, that the internet's kind of like a house of mirrors, right? You walk in and some stuff gets really small and insignificant and other stuff is, whoa, you know, my neck is eight feet long. Um, you get that same phenomenon, right? Fans have always hung out together, but they get online and, whoa, fan community is eight feet long. Um, You've got contact between more people. You have sustained contact during time when there wasn't contact before. Um, and they also make things visible that were always going on but weren't observable before. Um, in the context of what I've been talking about, these, these private personal stories of my mom wants to listen to your song on her deathbed, they didn't know that. You know, I mean, your mom's sitting there dying. Dear David, I wanted to write you a fan letter to let you know. It probably, you know, it's probably happened sometimes, but now it happens all the time. It happens a lot um, where people 
see that you're right there on Facebook, you can just send them a personal message on Facebook. You know, you can just send, you're on their fan page, you can just send them a message and say, I wanted to tell you what this song meant to me. So all these things that we've all been experiencing around music, suddenly they're visible to artists in ways that they weren't before. Um, the fan relationships are visible in ways that they weren't before. So you have enhancement and you have increased visibility. Uh, I think more so than you have complete novelty. The second point that I want to make out of all of this is that despite gazillions of attempts to cast social media as good or bad, right? it's killing music, it's saving music, it's killing relationships, it's saving relationships, it's both, right? Let's get Berkey in, it's both and. Um, it's rewarding and it's challenging. It's hard. It requires strategic negotiation to figure out how to navigate social media well. And I think that as, as, um, as cultures, as individuals, we're still really early in the process of trying to figure out how do we navigate these media. And the fact that they're constantly changing and that even when you have one that you think you have down suddenly has a new interface and changes its privacy settings and you got to go read some policy statements in French to figure out what it means. Um, it's constant. It's a constant negotiation. It's a constant process of negotiation to try and figure out how do you manage these as individuals, as cultures, as industries in ways that are more rewarding than they are expensive. Because it's going to be both. It's going to be both. There's always cons and pros. And then the final point that I want to make, reflecting back to issues of piracy and, and customers and, and monetization, is that there's amazing social value happening here that we don't really understand. And we really don't understand at all how those social values intersect with economic values. Right? If you talk to these musicians, they're very confused about how to make money. Right? Some of them are doing well. Some of them are fine. A lot of them are very confused about how to make money. They love social media, a lot of them, for all the reasons I've talked about, but they don't see how it connects with making money. And this is, of course, why you've got return on fan and monetize your fans and, and formulas to help you set a price tag on the value of a Facebook fan or an email address on your mailing list because this is what everybody wants to know. How can you convert all of this ephemeral social stuff into dollar signs or euros or pick your monetary unit? Um, and I think this is an issue of, of huge importance, huge importance, not just for saving the music industry or industries, some of which, you know, can die, and that would be fine because amazing new things are happening in their wake around technology and music um, and, and music production and so on. Um, but you, we're, we're in a time now where these media are facilitating personal connection and are writing on personal connection. And even far outside of music, personal connection and personal relationship and social values are becoming the basis of business models, right? Facebook's whole model is predicated on friendship, both in the sense of being a Facebook friend, but also in the sense of people care about each other, 
right? If we didn't care about each other and we didn't care what each other were doing, then there would be nothing to advertise on, right? Everybody's Facebook profile would be blank because nobody would be looking at each other. Um, so you have this incredible exploitation of personal relationships and, and social value and social feeling in the service of economic interests. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but I am saying that it's a very delicate thing and it's a, something that's extremely ethically fraught uh, and something that we really ought to be thinking through in a lot more detail than we really have thus far. So I will leave it there and welcome questions. Thank you. So I'm going to pass the mic around. Um, that was a terrific talk. Thank you. I'm sorry for my Davy Jones outburst. No, no, I'm just, glad you're, I couldn't no, stop you're myself. So I'm so embarrassed I didn't notice it. Okay. Oh, um, here I am making a deep point and it's anyway, stupid. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you one really quick question and yeah, then I wanted to pass on the mic. But first. I opened with a kind of red herring about TV, but one thing I noticed would um, was uh, one thing I've noticed in TV uh, social media interactions is that when fans and showrunners, writer, producers talk to each other, there's a, a lot of discussion about the work and where the work is going to go. And so the fan will say, you created this terrific character, but what you did last week is something that character would never do. What are you thinking? And then the showrunner may say, uh, well, it's my character, so forget it. Or, you're right, and I'm going to rethink that, and they, they, they take the feedback. Is there a sense uh, in the work that you're doing that there's an impact on the creative production that is being discussed and that you know, the end product of the music is changing because of the social media interactions ever? Well, yes and no. Um, no in the sense that everybody I talk to clings really tightly to the idea that this is their creative process yeah. and that the sound of the music belongs to them and can only come from them. And they don't want people saying, you really need more bass on that one and also your songs are too long. Yeah. Um, but a number of them are very open to feedback about things like, here's 18 songs, which 12 should go on the album? Okay. Or what's the right sequence for these songs? Um, so there's ways in which the creative process is, is changed. One of my favorite stories that I heard about creative process was from Kate Shutt, who did a project where she asked fans to send her their love stories, which she was going to use as the basis for an album. And she was blown away by the stories that fans sent. They sent these amazing, amazing tales, and she just couldn't believe it. Um, but none of them inspired any songs. Mm -hmm. But... At the same time, being in continuous communication with her audience made her feel more creative. And she felt that it was the best album that she had made and the one that fully realized her own creative potential because of that communication, even though the music itself wasn't directly influenced by that direct input. So I think it's a, another topic that's so ripe for analysis is the many ways in which creativity can be influenced because it's not necessarily yeah I changed the lyrics because you're right they were dumb yeah yeah no, that's really interesting thanks um I saw there's a zillion hands start with Rodrigo all hands in the back thanks hi Nancy um I wondered if you had any thoughts on artists who deliberately avoid either identification or connection I'm kind of thinking of three sort of types here like the outright um, sort of anonymity, like a burial figure or somebody like that, 
the kind of reluctant technologist like a James Murphy from LCD Sound System going on MySpace and saying, I feel incredibly awkward about this and, and talking to you in this way. And then a kind of um, another example being, say, uh, Autica, a British electronica act who famously publicity shy, waited until they'd had about 2,000 questions uh, on one topic on a Facebook page and then wrote a two-word response. <laughs> so they were kind of exploiting it. I just wondered what you think about the way people are kind of exploiting the, the, the sort of social media, hypermedia. Yeah, I like that you use the word exploit because <clears throat> I think in some of these cases... That's exactly what's going on. It's sort of like, well, I can't be rebellious by getting a mohawk and piercing my ear with a safety pin anymore, but I cannot use MySpace. Ha, 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 ha. So sometimes I think it is exploitation, and sometimes it can be a great way to, you know, get coverage. You know, wow, you're doing this, um, you're rebelling, right? So sometimes it can be part of sort of an ethos of, of counter, counterculture kind of ethos and a way of demonstrating that. In other cases... I think that some people are just profoundly, genuinely not interested, right? They just don't care about social media. They don't really... Sometimes they totally dig talking to their fans in person, right? But they just... They don't like computers. They use the phone to make calls. They're not... They love their guitars or they love their, their synthesizers, but they're just not very interested in computers. And I think that, you know, we all know those people. Right? They're probably not at MIT, but they exist in the world. It's true. Um, and, and so sometimes I think it's just that, that they're just really not interested and they don't see its relevance to music making. And I have to say that I'm not convinced that it is relevant to music making in the sense that I think you can be a totally successful artist without actually using social media or caring about social media or owning a computer. I don't think that you have to be on Facebook to have an audience. And I think there's a lot of prominent examples of successful artists who don't use social media and people go buy their records anyway and they buy their tickets anyway. So I think it's a totally legitimate perspective to say, I'm not interested in this, it's not what I do. <laughs> so uh, to follow up on the uh, question before last, um, you invoked the spirit of Amanda Palmer. And I was sort of curious about, about this because, as you know, she's been involved in a variety of flame wars online. And a lot of what you were talking about was very sort of positive fans expressing their stories or maybe creepy like fans too positive. But it seems like there have been many cases of musicians and other public figures um, getting into fights online and, and seeing, feeling like this really affects their relationship with their fans. Did any mm -hmm. of that come out with yeah. insights about Yeah, that? absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just blanking. Billy Bragg had a great phrase for it, which I sadly am not remembering right this second. He talks a lot about that. You know, people just go off on you just because they can't, right? And... Um, there's a lot of aggression that people get exposed to. And again, there's ways that people manage it. One of the big ways of managing it is never going to YouTube. Um, and again, that's something that people, you know, I mean, it's just like teaching evaluations, right? You get 100 people going, this is the best class I ever had. You're brilliant. And you get one person said, you suck, and you're, all you think about is yourself. And you're like, oh, I hate myself. Why don't you? Um, 
it's exactly, it was amazing when talking about this, how much it sounded like teaching, right? And so, yeah, there is a lot of aggression that people have to encounter, and that's definitely a really dark side that colors people's interest in engaging these platforms. And people talk about different platforms as having different levels of that and different ways of being able to control that. So, for example, people talked about they like Twitter because if somebody starts doing that, they can block them. Or they like Facebook because Facebook has a norm of niceness. You don't get as much of that on Facebook. Right? And again, with Facebook, you can block. So, and YouTube is evil because people will just do it. I think Roger O'Donnell had a line about if you gave them weapons, they'd form an army and take over the world. They're the nastiest people there are. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the talk. I have two questions for you, two interrelated questions. One is, uh, how, do you, uh, how do your findings scale? So do they apply uh, for uh, artists with 20,000 fans or 200,000 fans or Justin Bieber? Uh, and also, how do they, uh, what is their longevity? It's, uh, it's a difficult question because it's, it's everything is in the making and it's, uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's in the change. But I believe that Neil Stevenson just uh, a couple of years ago noted that the, the notions with which we are working uh, have shorter lifespans than a pigeon. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, take information superhighway or MySpace uh, yeah. for that reason. So yeah. how how do how do they, these uh, statements? So how uh, do they scale in size in of time? audience and in time? In time yeah. um, the size of audience question is a really interesting one, and you know, sadly, I haven't been able to get Lady Gaga and the like to talk to me, and I wish I could. I'd love to talk to Jason, Justin, Jason. Shame on me, Justin Bieber. Love, I would love to. And if any of you know Justin. Give him my email. Um, if you look at Lady Gaga, though, you know, here's a huge star. And I think you, you can argue that a lot of her music is that kind of industrial production of pop songs that people will dance to that will make a lot of money. But if you look at her relationship with her audience, right, she's got this very nurturing, loving, caring uh, concern for them. And she's really doing a lot of things to really try and improve their lives. Um, and I think that, I, I don't know that it holds across all people. I mean, uh, part of what I tried to convey is that people have different feelings about this, even within the sample I've looked at. I think that, that even super famous people with enormous audiences struggle with, is there, is there real value to what I do, or am I just making pieces of plastic that people buy? And knowing that their music or their work has profoundly affected people I think that's a basic human need. Um, so I think in that sense it does scale. I think the kinds of issues um, play out differently at different levels. Um, but again, I haven't had the chance to speak with super, super famous people. I mean, I think uh, probably um, the guy from UB40, they, they, you know, they've been selling out enormous arenas for 30-plus years. Um, he sounds just like all these other people. You know, for what that's worth. In terms of time, again, I think part of what I've tried to convey is the fact that these things change so fast is itself part of the process of dealing with them. And so in that sense, that keeps on going, right? The technologies are going to keep evolving, and so the problems keep on going. Um, I think that these, these issues of how can I be engaged without giving too much away? How can I be open to a lot of people while still preserving space for myself and my loved ones? Um, how can I 
explore what's new and what's exciting out there while still having time for the things I value. Again, I think these are core human issues. These are not products of 2012. So I, I, think, I think they will scale through time. I think, you know, in 10 years, people will really like, oh, I remember Twitter, right? But they'll say, but you know what? A lot of the same stuff is still happening with Zixbox or whatever people are doing in the future. Yeah. Thank you. Really interesting talk. Um, I, I totally uh, agree with this economic exchange versus social exchange. And I guess I'm wondering where it might be pointing in, toward, in terms of new innovations in music. Uh, I think you're right. The 20th century was a really unusual time for music where it became all about the author and copyright and commercialization on a mass scale that changed the way we view creativity. And I think music was a big part of that. And when I think about the sort of the digital innovations that's happened in recent years and thinking about, you know, Google and Apple and Facebook and some of these big companies that there's been a lot of look at, like, how did Google succeed? How did Apple, Steve Jobs do it? What's up with Facebook? There's a way in which people want to understand the success of the last company, but it seems that the next company that comes operates on very different principles. Uh, and I, I expect this is probably what we'll see in music as well. And, and so what I guess what I'm wondering is that if we're looking for, for innovation in music more from the margins, right, rather than saying we've got this social value, let's quick turn it, how do we turn it into money, how do we make it like a CD, that if you see things on the margins of the music world that might move in and provide alternative models. And you mentioned Kickstarter, I think it's an interesting one, mm -hmm. right, fan mm -hmm. funding. I'm thinking of things like Beatport maybe, which unlike iTunes, which looks like, a magazine, Billboard magazine, Beatport's more curated by the DJs, and you can explore Glitch Hop Top 100, and it's a different way of organizing things, or even these companies that are managing the fan-artist relationships, that they all seem to offer something else uh, that we haven't had in the past, and I'm wondering if you see any of those kinds of things that might offer musicians different models uh, yeah. for fitting into this relationship that's emerging. Well, I'm, I'm super interested in fan funding. I don't think that's the way forward for everybody, but I think it's a really, really interesting phenomenon. And I think just from a, from a communication and media perspective, to Amanda Palmer, right, people gave her $1.2 million when she asked for 400000 right? Why? Why do you do that? Why do people give her... $800,000 more than she asked for. That's kind of a lot of money, especially in a time when we were told that people won't pay for music. And if you think about, well, what was she offering? Okay, so she was offering really cool turntables that had been painted individually, right? So I think that's part of it. Mike Nasnick, who writes the blog Tech Dirt, talks about give fans a reason to buy. And, and so he talks a lot about beautifully produced objects that are not... Um, things you can download. So I think that's one pathway is something where the object itself still matters. And if we're moving away from object, I think the relationship matters and access matters. Um, I wish, I really, really, really wish that I had the answer to this question, you know, in the sense of, well, there's three models moving forward. <laughs> um, that would be really great. Um, and I would be patenting them right away. And it, but uh, I don't. Um, my sense is that for quite some time, we're going to have a lot of different models. And that it could be that the days of there's a model that you use are over. 
and that what we might well have is a lot of different models. And I hope that as that happens, we will get a better sense of how to know which model is right for you. Um, but again, I don't think we're there yet. Or what combinations of models work for different kinds of creators. Thank you. Excellent, uh, excellent topic. Uh, I, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was Dr. Johnson who once said, uh, only a blockhead would uh, write for anything other than money. I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, your talk makes me think about motivation, the artist's motivation, and how we yeah. uh, really get the story. Uh, because uh, if you talk to people about, you know, what do you think you're doing, uh, they will sometimes give you a story that, you know, sounds uh, in, you know, it sounds uh, like uh, uh, they see their, what they're doing in one way when you actually look at uh, how they're behaving and you see that they have uh, uh, a lot of needs and demands. And I'm thinking of uh, artists. Uh, some of the artists you're talking about, of course, are people who have uh, achieved a great deal of success, but there's this huge uh, intermediate area of people who are trying to break through and trying to survive. And I've heard so many uh, interviews where somebody says, well, you know, I starved for about 15 years and then I got lucky and suddenly... And then Justin uh, Bieber so discovered me. It seems to me that for artists, uh, economics is, is, is the lifeblood of uh, the ability to, you know, uh, stay alive for the next uh, performance. And so I'm just trying to figure out, as you're talking here, how you're measuring uh, these, these uh, comp complicated situations that uh, most artists uh, struggle in. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that's the key right there, is that on the one hand, artists, I, I don't think anybody, you'd have to be stupid to wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'd like to make money. I think I'm going to try to be a musician. <laughs> right? I mean, you're just asking you're just asking for a life of poverty if you try to become, it's, you know, it's like going, I'm going to be an NBA star when I grow up, right? It doesn't happen to very many people, and it never has, right? And I think that's important to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, oh, it's so hard to make a living in music these days. It was never easy to make a living in music, right? In the 80s, very few musicians ever, ever, ever got the chance to even have their music distributed, right? So I don't think it's necessarily harder. That's a digression. To go to your question, I think that people are motivated on different levels, that, that people are motivated by a desire to create things of beauty, by a desire to express things that they can't express in conversation with friends. There's people who just wake up with music in their head and they have to get it out or they can't eat breakfast that day. Um, so there's, I think, a, lo a lot of different motivations that drive people in their creative process. But at the same time, and this is why I think it's so important that we think about how do the social and the economic connect, if you get up and you have to, a song that you have to get out before you can eat breakfast, but you have to go to work, then that song isn't going to come out, right? Because other things are going to get in the way. And if we want people to be able to have careers as artists and enrich the world with their art, then we do have to think about what are ways in which these people can earn a living. And so I, I don't think that musicians are generally, and there are probably exceptions, but I don't think that generally speaking artists are motivated by economics because there's much more secure and predictable ways to make money if that's your goal in life. But they do need to if they're going to do that for a living. And that's the, you know, that's the huge challenge is how do these things fit together. 
Thanks. Uh, thanks for the great talk, Nancy. It was really interesting. Um, I actually have kind of a two-part question. Uh, first, a more general question about your research, and then, if you don't mind, I'd like to come back around to a more specific follow-up. Um, so I noticed that among your informant participants, you don't really have many or, or any hip-hop artists or rappers, which I think is a shame because... I could not agree more, and if you know any, set me up, because it was <laughs> okay. not for lack of trying. I was in conversation with Island Jeff Dam Island Def Jam people for months, and they're like, oh, this is great, we're going to get back to you. And, you know, at some point, you can only go back so many times and say, please, please, <laughs> please. It was not for lack of trying. Okay, so uh, actually, I do have somebody for you that leads That would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, so there's a, there's a rapper based in Berkeley, California, named Lil B, who's actually going to be in town playing at the Middle East on the 30th of this month. Mm-hmm. He's got an interesting kind of model. He's, he's very avant-garde with his use of social media. He started off as kind of a mainstream major label artist in a pop boy band, then went off the grid, came back after a while as a, an unsigned solo artist, and since then he's been releasing about an album every 10 to 14 days, a couple thousand songs a year. Most of them, like 95% of them are free. Um, and something really interesting has come up with him because he's got that output. He has to get enough beats. He has to have enough backing tracks to kind of record his raps over. And uh, he ends up turning to his fans to, to send him beats that he uses for free and then records you know, his, his tracks over and releases those to the public also for free. Um, what's happened as a result of that, and he's very committed to not charging money for his music and he suggests he never will. He's not looking for it. How is he making money? Um, he's sort of still living off of the checks from his the boy band history, pack, which he's yeah. still getting royalty checks, and otherwise he kind of has a humble life. Um, okay. He just records on his laptop and basically relies on the goodwill of others, from what I can tell, um, when he's touring and things like that. But what's happened with some of his fans are um, people who start off as bedroom producers send him tracks, and then they get so much exposure and renown from that, they get signed to major label deals. Uh, they end up being written about in the major music press. There's uh-huh. at least two good examples of that. A guy from New Jersey named Clams Casino, also the producer Keyboard Kid. They started off as Lil B fans, and now these are professional beat makers for major label artists. So yeah. in your talk, you talked a little bit about asymmetrical relationships or sort of the, the artist has the power over the, the fans. But this is a, an example where it almost seems like the fans are deriving more value, more economic value from the exchange than the artists themselves. So I'm wondering, awesome. have you studied those kind of phenomena at all? Do our current models of how social media work really account for that, that? Or does something... It's a, it's a great example. I did do some work about fans of independent Swedish music who basically spend enormous amounts of time promoting that music online. And uh, my sort of intervention into it was at the level of Web 2.0 is about exploitation. And when fans are producing, promoting things online or participating, they're being exploited. Um, which I find very um, insulting, right, to say that somebody who sends beats to somebody because they dig their music and they want to be part of it is being exploited. Or to go back to Amanda Palmer's controversy du jour, that a musician who chooses to play live with her without being paid is part of some big exploitation mechanism. You know, have these people got no free will and no choice-making abilities? Of course they do, and we need to understand what motivates them. Why do they want to participate in this? And so in that sense... um, there are a lot of reasons to want to participate in these things and a lot of ways of gaining status from them besides money that we need to account for. And your point about some of them becoming successful is really relevant because we see again and again in all kinds of, you know, take the Fifty Shades of Grey where fandom for some 
creative fans does get converted into success. Um, and that's a very real phenomenon that fan creativity it can be a, a step towards professional success and that that's, that's a pathway that's now opened up that wasn't as open before. And that's a really important shift. Yeah. Was that the coming back or did you have a coming back after that coming back? Um, I think we have time for maybe two or three more questions. Just a very quick one. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Thanks for the talk. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned a few quotes in which musicians talked about their relationships with fans as being a little bit too friendly and too close. And I think that's a very sensitive topic, right? Because if you publish that, feelings could be hurt. Um, so as you were interviewing these people, did these musicians express concern about where these quotes are going to go? Do you think there could be any implicit agendas in their talks, and how do you leverage that in your, um, in your analysis? Thanks. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, with all of the interviews, I started by saying, you can do this totally in your name, you can do this totally anonymous, or you can have some sections that won't have your name attached to them. And in a number of cases, I sent people the transcripts, and they color-coded which parts they didn't want their name attached to. And... A few of the things where they didn't want their name on them were things where it was about their wife or something personal like that. But almost all of them were things that could be read as insulting to the fans. Like one person told me that he hated his online fan board because they were so cliquish and he didn't want to think that that's what his fans were like. Um, so quotes like that where they're talking about scariness or too closeness, um, they... They've explicitly given me consent to do that with their name on it and have explicitly been offered the opportunity to not have their name on it and have, have declined that. Um, as far as what their agendas are in saying it, I don't know. But I, I, I will say that just about every single person that I spoke with had had some experience of fans that were too friendly and in many cases were outright stalkers. Um, and that's, I think, an under, undercovered element of the artist experience. And it was not just the women. I mean, the women all had it, but the men had it too. These people who just write to them 10 times a day and won't stop, and they want to talk about how their father is bipolar and how this has really like, screwed up their whole life. And suddenly they're like, ah, I'm not your therapist, right? Um, so I think that... I think that, that this is just a really real part of their experience that they wanted to share, given the chance to talk about these topics. Hello. Thanks Hello. for the talk. Um, not to kind of fetishize that, that letter you showed, but, you know, it's a nice, it's a beautiful, long letter. And I was wondering if you, in your interviews, if from these established artists that were here kind of before social media, if they've seen the, the kind of quality of, interaction with fans go down. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot more effort to kind of, you know, type out a letter, go to the post office and mail it, than, you know, than it does now to kind of go on Facebook, type in someone's name and post something. Has that come up in the interviews? Do people even care about that? Kind of? It's funny that you mentioned that because just today I was looking at a quote um, where somebody was complaining. And he's not a, a huge artist, but he, he is somebody who had it from the from the Boston band, Big Dipper, who... Uh, put out some albums in the late 80s, 
and then broke up, and now they're kind of back together, kind of, emphasis on kind of. Um, but he talked about, you know, how they saved all their fan letters and bags, and then a horrible incident happened with paint, and they were all ruined. Um, but but it, he was talking in this section about um, how one of the things that, to him, is really sad about social media is that the formatting is all the same. Everything's in the same font. Everything looks alike. And that when you got a fan letter, it was their stationery, and it was their handwriting, and it was their stamp that they had licked, and there was something so personal about it that's lost. A lock of hair, perhaps. A lock of hair, perhaps, <laughs> right. Something so personal that's been lost. And, and uh, so that came up. But that's actually the only time that they talked about it. And we did talk about fan letters a lot, you know. And generally their sense was fan letters were special and we saved them. One person told me a tale of actually pinning the fan letters up in the studio while they were recording. Um, but by and large, they t they, they're hearing amazing stories. They're getting amazing letters. It's not as though the, con the content has been diminished. The, the, the quality of the tales they're getting are still really rich and really wonderful and much more plentiful. So I think that the format issue bothers them. And I think they kind of like, one musician I talked to kept using the phrase, it's a light touch. You can have a light touch on Facebook. And, and the, the idea that fans can just go, hey, great show last night, I loved it, or wonderful rendition of that song. Um, those kind of little little things are really important that nobody would, you know, nobody, one of them said, Mike Timmons said, it's almost like a thank you card that you would send, right? But nobody sent thank you cards. Thank you for your concert last night. We're so glad you came to town, right? But they will on Facebook. So, so yes, there is some loss of the personal in it for some. But the, the quality of writing and the depth of what they're receiving and the elaborate tales they're getting are anything but diminished. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take one last question. Hey, I just want to say thank you because uh, I love that you had so many good, long, rich quotes. That's really what I love about doing this sort of research is the stuff that you can pull out of these really great narratives that you I get know, from people. Being bound by the slide is so annoying. Like, but there's 700 more words in this quote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the question I wanted to ask was, um, did any of the people you talked to have any thoughts on authenticity? Or, or oh how my God, did they ever? I, I because I'm thinking of <laughs> because my work is more on gaming communities uh, and something I've noticed at least with um, gaming fans, other than they're being crazy, demanding, and sort of murderous, is that uh, they they really like it when they perceive, and especially indie developers, they perceive that the developers are gamers like them, right? That they understand what it's like to play and enjoy a game, mm -hmm. and kind of when it sets them apart from the corporate spin machine. Uh, I think the Mass Effect three ending nonsense is the best example of that where Bioware was just deploying people on Twitter like an army but it was all towing the company line so people were getting frustrated um, it seems like label interference and things like that would be issues that would come up with this uh, so yeah anything that they they said about authenticity or how talking directly to their fans on social media could like establish their street cred is like yeah I love music just like you I'm not a corporate shill for the man man <laughs> um, issues of authenticity in in music are 
You know, you go to a, like a, a pop music conference and they all just sit there, there is no authenticity, there is authenticity. What is authenticity? It's, it's a quagmire. Um, it's a heck of a quagmire to even wade into. Um, by and large, I think that the musicians I spoke with generally want to, quote, be real and are concerned with being real. And that phrase is used a lot, being real. Um, and when they're asked about sort of what do they think their fans want, my fans just want me to be real. And it doesn't mean being a fan like they are, because I think it's pretty obvious that most musicians are music fans, and that's why they're doing it. Um, so I don't think that's the issue so much as the music that I'm making comes from my heart, right? It's an honest expression of, of what I feel rather than something I've, um, you know, cooked up in the factory in order to make money, right? I think that's the tension there. Um, so I think that, that for many of them, being able to talk about what they're doing, share bits of their lives that are not necessarily just the music making are are part of that being able to demonstrate authenticity, whatever that is. Um, I think, you know, I mean, theoretically, authenticity is an incredibly fraught concept because it presumes a real self that's stable and persists through time and is somehow, can be verified as the true self, as though we're all the same from moment to moment. And, you know, I think... Um, Selves are much more complex than that, right? And what's true at one moment of us may not be true at the next moment, and it doesn't mean that we're inauthentic. Um, but I think that sense of being real and being able to have real connections with people is definitely something that motivates them. I did speak with some of them about um, who posts their messages for them. And um, most of them would say, like, well... Most of them do their own Twitter. Um, when they have managers or interns who are doing the social media stuff for them, they have it be very clear that those messages are not authored by them. Right? So like one, a couple of them, when it's the management office doing it, it'll be signed team so-and-so uh, rather than themselves. Right? One manager I spoke with... Um, was talking about an uh, artist that she represents who does not use social media very often, and so they, in the office, will do a lot on his Facebook page to continue to engage people, um, and they'll sign it, team, his name. But then, now and then, he'll come and he'll post something, and she said the metrics just go through the roof. right? So many more likes, so many more shares, so many more responses. So... I think that's the level at which it's operating in social media for these guys. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to invite you all to continue the conversation uh, over in E14. We're having a reception, and you can talk to Nancy some more and talk to each other. Um, <laughs> and I'll witness it. <laughs> she can watch it. It'll be great. <laughs> Observe. She'll do a participant observation. And then do it on study. Twitter. So, I can. so um, thank you all for coming, and let's send a special thanks to uh, Nancy for coming. A real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for all the great comments, even the Davy Jones.